You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to my podcast. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk for Friday the 24th of March. At the end of a dramatic week for the finance sector, here are today's headlines. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority Thursday raised the city's base rate by 25 basis points to a 15-year high of 5.25% in lockstep with the Fed, which several hours earlier raised its target rate by a quarter point to a range of 4 and 3 quarters to 5%. Despite the rise from the HKMA, several local banks said they would keep their lending rates unchanged. The best lending rate at HSBC, Bank of China and Hang Seng Bank, now stands at 5.625% per annum. Standard Chartered, Bank of East Asia and other lenders were offering loans at 5.875. The Bank of England raised its benchmark interest rate by 25 basis points to 4.25% as expected, a fresh 14-year high after inflation increased unexpectedly. Other banks, uh, central banks in Switzerland, Norway and the Philippines also raised their interest rates. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said Thursday the U.S. was prepared to take additional actions if warranted to ensure the safety of U.S. bank deposits. She said we've used important tools to act quickly to prevent contagion and they're tools we could use again. Joining me today to discuss some of those stories are Francis Lun, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Alicia Garcia-Herrero, Chief Economist for Asia-Pacific at Natixis. And with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, Director at Stratton Advice. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Your stocks rallied to close slightly higher yesterday and recoup some of their losses from the previous day as traders bet that the Federal Reserve may be nearing the end of its rate-hiking cycle. The Dow gave up gains of over 480 points to close 75 points or 0.2% higher at 32,105. The S&P 500 closed 0.3% higher at 3,949, having been up as much as 1.8% earlier in the day. All sectors closed in the red other than the heavyweight technology and communications sector. That helped the Nasdaq outperform. The Nasdaq Composite climbed 1% to 11,787. It was up 2.5% at the high of the session. Hong Kong stocks were the biggest gainers in the Asia-Pacific region, rising for a third day. By the end of the day, the Hang Seng Index had surged 458 points, or 2.3%, to 20,050. The Tech Index soared 1.6%. The Hang Seng Index was boosted by shares of Tencent, which rose 8.2% after it reversed two successive quarters of revenue decline and said it was well positioned to benefit from the ending of the country's zero COVID policy. Futures markets are pointing to a loss of about 240 points. That's 1.2% for the Hang Seng at the open. Treasury prices jumped higher on Thursday and yields fell with the front end of the curve leading the gains. The two-year yield fell below 3.8% at one stage, closing 16 basis points lower at 3.83%. Fed funds futures markets are pricing in a 66% chance that there will be no change in interest rates at the Fed's next meeting in May. And they're anticipating 75 basis points of rate cuts after that by the end of the year. The US dollar hovered around six-week lows, Asian currencies rose and gold soared above $2,000 at one stage for the first time since March 2022. And you can get more details on the latest market movements on my daily blog at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. 
Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And let's join our guests. We have with us Francis Lund, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. A very good morning to you. Uh, hi, good morning. It's great to have you back on the programme. Yes, uh, such a long time. It has been a while, hasn't it? And <laughs> always very happy to have on the show Alicia Garcia Herrero, who is Chief Economist for Asia Pacific and the Texas. Very good morning to you, Alicia. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority, as you heard there, raised the city's base rates by 25 basis points to a 15-year high of 5.25%. Francis, we're, we're getting at levels now, aren't we that are, that are quite restrictive here in uh, here in Hong Kong. Is, yeah, what sort of impact is this going to have? Well, it's getting quite expensive now. I check on my mortgage payment. I have to pay uh, double the interest I paid last year, which means I have that much less to spend on. So this, this is very bad for uh, consumption. So uh, uh, I, I will have to say, uh, try to uh, spend less on clothing and go uh, spend less time out eating. So mm. so so that, that that would be bad news for the retailers and the restaurants. So so so, so I think it, it, it's good that the the banks kept the uh, uh, the prime rate. At the same level, but but the problem is that the uh, uh, interbank rate is much higher now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we pay above five percent uh, for for the mortgage instead of two or three percent a year ago. So 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 be, be, and 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 because uh, 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 the mortgage payment is up half of our income, so. Mm-hmm. This is a big uh, uh, problem for for the ordinary Hong Kong citizen. Alicia, we're at five and a quarter percent now here in Hong Kong um, with the city's base rates. What sort of impact is that going to have on the local economy and maybe particularly the housing market? Well, uh, the good news is that, well, of course, it's bad news, but there is a slight uh, good news behind this bad news, uh, which is that the Hong Kong economy is recovering. So it's a question of versus demand versus cost of funding. Yeah. So we are seeing renewed demand for housing, uh, commercial real estate. Uh, I would argue that for housing, um, the role of uh, mortgage rates in Hong Kong is is uh, rather rather moderate mm. because of the huge down payment and basically you know the the very high uh, saving ratio i think for commercial real estate um, industrial logistics all of that it, it's probably going to be worse and do you think um that the fed has it's sort of indicating that maybe um, rates are near a peak. Do you think that's where we are? Or do, do you think um, maybe now sort of we're looking at uh, the end of this rate hiking cycle? Yes, I, I would say that uh, it will. it's all data dependent. We need to check inflation. The Fed has increased its inflation forecast for year end uh, at 3.3 rather than 3.1. This is good news for a very simple reason. It means the uh, Fed accepts for this year slightly higher inflation. And that means that it might be fine with, uh, you know, with, with the current rate as a terminal rate. Uh, but if inflation actually surprises upwards, i.e. this 3.3% end of year inflation um, is too low, given uh, the next data point, um, then maybe the Fed will have to do a, an additional 25 basis points. So I would say we're very close to terminal rate, if not at terminal rate. 
What do you think, Francis? Do you think we're almost there? Well, at least uh, Jerome Powell says so. He said <laughs> maybe 5.1% would be the peak, I think. I hope so, too. But, but, but I think uh, uh, inflation in the U.S. is much harder to tame because, because part of the, uh, the component for, for, for consumer price index is rent. Mm. Rent is not going down anytime soon. Uh, food prices may be going down and fuel prices are going down, but rent certainly are not going down. It's, it's just like Hong Kong. Uh, property prices went down a little bit, but rent is all, all staying at the same level. So what you have in Hong Kong here is a leveling of inflation in terms of the food and, and other things. But if you go out to eat, I think you find out the prices are higher than last year. So, uh, But uh, overall, I think inflation is more manageable in Hong Kong than in the U.S. And certainly UK, UK is suffering something like 10% inflation, so it's really tough for the regular citizens. So I think uh, overall, I think uh, uh, in Hong Kong, we are faring much better than the people in the US and UK. Alicia, do you agree with that? Inflation is more under control here in Hong Kong than it is in the US? Uh, it, it, well, inflation has been under control in Hong Kong, uh, but that's been under very you know, very special circumstances last year. We've not seen uh, yet, and in that regard, I agree, a major rebound. But we've also not seen a major rebound of um, incoming uh, travelers. Yeah. So the question is, if that happens, uh, will there be an inflation rebound? And my answer is yes, because this is a very open economy, dependent on imports for everything. And the, the, demand, the excess demand, Chin up uh, retail sales, which justifies yeah, a much higher growth rate this year, around 3% from minus 3, will bring inflation in my view. Maybe not massive like the US because wages are more controlled, but certainly more than last year. Do, do, uh, you, think, do you think the Fed, though, is, is, or Jerome Powell is maybe slightly giving up on the inflation fights because <laughs> real interest rates in the US are still negative, aren't they? Um, inflation um, is still very high, um, and yet he's now talking about sort of pausing interest rates. Yes, but um, I, I actually don't think so. And the reason is very simple, is that uh, the marginal impact, I mean, the, it, of higher rates doesn't really, I mean, this is basically sticky inflation idea. Yeah, it doesn't really affect inflation so quickly because we have second round effects already. In the U.S., mm. inflation is all about uh, services and wages. It's not goods inflation anymore. So it's going to take time. So the only channel basically is to 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 lower activity, to unfortunately, and, and that's going to take slightly more time. But I do think that uh, five, I mean, over five uh, uh, rates in the U.S. is a massive hit to the economy. Mm. It is, in housing market in particular. So I think it's just that it's, it's going to take time. But I do think inflation will come down in the U.S. 
So Francis, is this more of a pause while the Fed sort of waits to see the mm. impact of previous rate rises on the economy? Um, but the market, though, is, is talking mm. about a 75 basis points of rate cuts now before the end of the year. <laughs> Seems a bit optimistic. Uh, I think the market has gone way ahead of itself. But, but first of all, I don't think US inflation can come down to 2%. I think mm. it's really way too optimistic. I think maybe... Inflation will come down to 4%, at best 3% in the coming year. I don't think it will come down to the 2% level because uh, the unions de- demand higher wages and, and, and things are getting more expensive, etc. And they still have the uh, uh, 20% or 25% tariff on Chinese goods. So uh, they're not really... the. The, the U.S. government is really not taking the, the steps to really lower uh, uh, the price of goods, especially imported goods. I think had they done so, they would have uh, been able to bring down inflation slightly. But still, the overall uh, situation is that uh, because of the inflation uh, the last two years and unions are demanding higher pace like in the UK and, and Europe. And so it is difficult for, for inflation to, to go down to 2%. But, but then uh, when interest rates are above 5%, I think, the, uh, uh, the house, like Alisa said, the uh, housing market will suffer. That is a big part of the economy. So I think the, the Federal Reserve will have to stop raising interest rate again. But I certainly don't think that next year we'll have uh, uh, a three-quarters percent cut in interest rate. Now, Alicia, the other concern this week has been, of course, the banking crisis, which over the weekend claimed the independence of Credit Suisse. But we seem to have um, attention seems to have switched now to the U.S. and whether or not depositors are actually safe um, if if a bank um, fails. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell was basically saying you should assume uh, your, your deposits are safe. But Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, said she's not considering expanding uh, the, the deposit insurance to, to all depositors. So that tends to suggest that they're not completely safe. So what do you think the situation is? Well, to, to be very frank, I mean, I don't know why people think deposits are fully safe. Nobody has ever given blanket guarantee um, in the U.S. Mm. And they couldn't afford to, could they? or anywhere else, um, <laughs> and um, I mean, except for major financial crisis. And we've all said that that was not the right way to go because mm. of huge moral hazard. So in other words, I just don't understand where the market is heading. Uh, we should not expect uh, Janet Yellen to come and say uh, everybody's guaranteed. Uh, that would have actually been read extremely negatively, in my view, for the role of the dollar globally. I mean, how, do you mean deposits in dollar all over the world? I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> a totally um, disconnect, in my view, a total disconnect between the market and what the regulators actually are expected to say. The fact that they already cover deposits at uh, Silicon Valley Bank, in my view, was already wrong because it was well uh, beyond the deposit insurance scheme in, in the U.S., they did it probably to avoid contagion, and now the end result is that everybody is expecting them to promise that for <laughs> every single bank in the U.S. It's just, it's just. Uh, so you know, 
I'm starting to think, going back to your point of 75 basis points cut this year, that the market is actually not listening, mm. that they are just not listening. And then they're hitting the wall once and again because they're expecting things that are not to be expected. And deposits, uh, uh, full guarantee on deposits, blanking guarantee is one of them. So you think it was wrong uh, to, to, to guarantee the deposits of Silicon Valley Bank? I actually wouldn't have done that. I think they they could have uh, guaranteed, and this is something that you know happens during crisis, money market deposits to avoid the run basically on the money market temporarily to avoid the uh, immediate impact of Silicon Valley Bank on other banks, mm-hmm. and have reassured um, depositors in the U.S. of the difference nature of this bank compared mm. to the rest of the retail banking sector in the U.S. That that would have been my take. If they really wanted to do that, they could have that 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 temporarily in the sense that basically like like a Credit Suisse uh, uh, stating that the bank was being sold. Mm. Yeah. And that that until a new buyer would be found, because I understand that they couldn't do so, although you know, basically the UK could, yeah, just probably a smaller unit of a Silicon Valley Bank, but still, then they, the deposit would have followed, you know, um, would have been guaranteed by the by the buyer, if you see what I mean. But they didn't need to say that they would guarantee them as they stand, even if there were no buyer, because that's that's the point. You are already changing the rules of the game. So, Francis, mm. if, if they were to do this, how on earth do they afford it? Because the FDIC, which guarantees these deposits, yeah. its assets are only about just over 1% of the whole banking system. <laughs> it's, it's not going to be able to afford to do this, is it? Well, if all the banks fail, everybody, they take their money from the bank and, uh, and they put it in the safe deposit uh, uh, box, then the uh, U.S. banking uh, uh, system will collapse because nobody will put any money in the bank. So, for, so for a political uh, uh, experience, I think it is important to try to calm the market mm. in in, ter- in times of crisis. This is what happened, and in two thousand eight, where the government uh, basically guaranteed all the deposits. Mm. I think. Uh, uh, what the government uh, did in the uh, Silicon Valley Bank case is that they want to stop the market panic. I think uh, that's what they have to do. And and had they not done it, the the, uh, the contagion would have engulfed the banking system, and mm-hmm. and the the whole it created will take the U.S. Uh, uh, economy several years to take out. So I think for expediency and for political reasons, I think the U.S. government must do something to calm the market. And this is the time the government has to do it. And uh, that's what Jerome Powell did. Uh, but of course, uh, 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 Lady Yellen uh, did not talk to uh, Jerome Powell. <laughs> <laughs> so, they, so, so, so they are talking about two things at the same time. So the government is not on the same uh, wavelength. So they, they must consult each other before they go to the public. Well, what they said, but both of them can't be true. Can they? <laughs> well, one of them must be true. So I think, uh, I, I think uh, uh, at the end of the day, I think the U.S government was, must uh, in some way uh, guarantee all deposits to car market fears. 
Now, Alicia, the other big aspect of what's been going on this week is the Swiss regulator's decision to wipe out um, the 81 bondholders in, in Credit Suisse. These are the, the bondholders um, of a fairly risky debt that's supposed to protect, in effect, the taxpayers from, from bearing losses. They got wiped out. Was that the right thing to do? And, and what's the impact of that going to be in Asia? Because this is where we've seen some spillover effects, isn't it? Banks um, got hit quite yeah. hard at the beginning of the week here in Asia over the uh, implications of that? Well, yes, we've actually written a report looking at um, 81s in Asia and, you know, what could be the rippling effect. Uh, the interesting thing is that there's quite a lot, actually, of Asian banks that are that have a lot of 80, uh, 81 issuance uh, as a percentage of, total, of their total solvency ratio. And therefore, in principle, potentially, uh, the uh, the contagion could be there. Some are Chinese banks, but of course, uh, this this paper is held by Chinese institutions, so you know it's probably easier to control the sell-off. Um, but beyond that, I think the the key point is that there seems to be this understanding that this is related to hikes in interest rates, meaning that you know the risk comes from from um, uh, from from basically a maturity mismatch or or repricing mismatch. I mean, the, the risk of repricing of U.S. Treasuries. And that's not so relevant for Asian institutions. So I think th- that's that's the key. And, and also local rates have not gone up as much as, as in Europe or in the, well, especially in the U.S. So I think that's the difference. Um, mm. But, you know, uh, we can't totally exclude, yeah, that, that there, could, there will be contagion in Asia. Francis, was it the right thing to do here? Or, and and what, what do you think the impact is going to be in Asia? Because there are quite a few holders of these bonds in yeah, Asia, aren't they? They yeah. were sold to private retail investors, wealthy investors. Yeah, certainly. I think what the Swiss government did was wrong, completely wrong, because this is additional tier one capital. But what the Swiss government should have done is convert all this 80, 81 into equity. And 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 they treat them the same as equity owners, shareholders, because uh, according to what we understand, this tier, this eighty one, uh, in case of liquidation, it is is ranked above equity owners. So the worst you can do is treat them as equity, mm-hmm. because it, it the name says is contingent convertible. So. So you cannot just, uh, with one pen, you wipe out completely. That is uh, dishonest, I think, of what the Swiss government to do because uh, uh, it's something like 16 billion Swiss francs. And uh, mm. so they, they're off the hook for 16 billion francs, but uh, the Swiss government lost all credibility on, in this case. And, and they also created panic in the uh, uh, bank bond market, I think, uh, especially for the perpetual and also for the cocoa bonds. But, uh, of course, the Swiss government is not going to change that. So so I think the uh, uh, cocoa bond holders will, 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 will just have to, uh, uh, like like PIMCO and, and, and other uh, 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 bond funds, we have to sue the Swiss government and see if try, they can recover <laughs> anything. But I, I doubt it because they already put in the legislation. So what can you do? Okay. Well, Alicia, final word to you. Let me give. Uh, let me ask you for a quick update on the economic outlook uh, for China. I know you've just done a, a report on that after the uh, after the end of the two sessions. What's your outlook? 
Well, uh, I think uh, for China, uh, the outlook is, um, as we've been told, growth hovering around 5%. Maybe we have 55 so I guess they will go slightly above uh, the target. The most recent data is not massively good, I have to say, because... Uh, retail sales are hovering around three and a half if they were above eight in 2019. So I don't think the new benchmark, or I'll put it this way, we are in a new normal. I mean, growth is going to be lower in China structurally and including actually 2023 uh, compared to um, another reopening uh, year, which was 2021. So we have to, to understand, and this might not be such a bad thing after all, because it means China will not create an inflationary pressure globally because the demand won't be there to to or the strong demand won't be there. And I think that's what we need to cope with now, that, that to understand that China will grow. This is great news, but not massively. OK, well, thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. That's Alicia Garcia Herrero, who is chief economist for Asia Pacific and the Tixis. And you also heard our regular Friday commentator, Francis Lun, who is the CEO of GEO Securities. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And I'm joined now from Australia by Toby Lawson, who is Director of Staten Advice. Very good morning to you, Toby. Yeah, good morning, Peter. It's been a dramatic week, hasn't it? It started off with a a banking crisis of sorts. It's ended with the Fed, um, despite that, raising interest rates by 25 basis points. Let's start with, with the situation with the banks first. Do you think now regulators around the world have done enough to stabilize the situation? I think he would use the term they've cauterized uh, the the wound here, for want of a better expression, which means it hasn't actually necessarily resolved the situation, but cauterized the impact uh, in the in the immediate term. So unlikely to get a lot worse um, immediately, but it hasn't changed the whole idea that at the regional level of U.S. banking or even the non bank banking financial sector, there is some stress because you're getting both a combination of uh you know higher um delinquency if you will on on lending but also at the same time higher funding costs for those regional banks um and that isn't going away that hasn't changed it's really now determining whether which banks can maintain its liquidity position and its capital buffers to to hold on and i guess at the moment it looks okay but I wouldn't say the problem's gone away. I mean, that, that's the problem, isn't it, with these small regional banks? And I'm wondering if that regional banking model can survive this because it tends to be based upon having fairly concentrated deposits in a particular sector of customer, whether it be crypto clients or in the case of Silicon Valley Bank uh, startup firms. And what you really want in a in a fractional reserve banking system is large banks with very wide and diverse uh, depositor bases. Yeah, but I think that yeah. So I think it's it's an it's an anomaly in in a sense because you know what you want to avoid at at, at least at the other side of the equation is is over regulation to the extent mm. that it becomes impossible for people to access credit um, because the large banks uh, with the with the heavy regulatory and heavy prudential requirements aren't necessarily going to lend to that segment of the economy that the regional banks and the non banks are going to lend into. So it's a it's a it's a dilemma. Um, and hence, having regional banks and, and non-bank financial lenders is an important part of the equation. And unfortunately, at times of stress where you get major shifts in funding costs, which driven by higher interest rates, 
you're going to have some dislocation. And, and I guess it comes down to how well you can control that, how you can project that. And what we found with SVB and these other regional banks is it's very hard to control. And what it's highlighted is, is an issue about whether or not depositors are actually protected. Jerome Powell said, yes, you're all completely safe. Janet Yellen says, no, you're not. Um, and we haven't really considered um, expanding the deposit scheme uh, to cover all banks and all depositors. This is going to be an issue as well, isn't it, going forward? Well, it comes down to what you define as, uh, in, at least in the terms of what banks are within the paradigm of strategically important or you know thresholds equivalent to protect the depositors. And I think it's a very interesting topic because you know the the depositors will be obviously very much of the view that they are protected to the extent that they are, um, but uh, maybe they're not. And I think this is particularly true, maybe not in the banking sense, but also in the non-bank sense, where there's very little protection. Mm. And are people now thinking about more where they do put their money, which banks they put it with, and 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 how you know safe that bank is? Is this a an issue now that people are going to have to think about more going forward? Well, I think from the uh, it, it 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 transcends beyond just pure banking deposits. It also transcends into investments and invest mm. in people's expectation of returns. And now people, you know, who probably when rates were low and they were chasing a bit of yield on investments, were probably parking money in you know some yield chasing instruments that may not necessarily be that attractive anymore and so you know this whole paradigm the second or third order effects of a banking crisis um aren't necessarily related purely to depositors you know it relates to um you know companies that are borrowing and it relates to other investments that people are doing on the private side so there's a whole lot of ramifications that can have second and third order effects so i think we're we're in the midst of a big shift at the moment and we've got to be very mindful that this is not over now, one area where people's expectations of return um, have had a big shock is these holders of 81 bonds of Credit Suisse, who in effect got wiped out. Um, and there's been quite a few buyers of these around Asia, aren't there? Because they're, they're quite, um, they have nice yields, 9 to 10%, but of course they are quite um, risky. But there's going to be a lot of lawsuits over this, I suspect. Well, I think this is an extraordinary set of circumstances. And at the moment, it looks to be peculiar to Switzerland in the structure of their AT1 issuance. But it actually, um, ironically, was a was a, a construct. Um, these cocos were a construct for the benefit of helping banks have a stronger regulatory capital using debt instrument rather than just equity. So they were designed quite, you know, as a reason to sort of help banks build their capital buffers by issuing a debt instrument that, uh, you know, can default into equity at a minimum. And uh, logically, you would expect that they, they have a higher... Um, a uh, higher level of uh, protection over the capital stack from equity, pure equity in the business. But with the Credit Suisse situation, it looks like that's not the case. So it is quite a significant issue. And you're right about lawsuits, but it also uh, puts in doubt the whole construct of having this debt instrument, this debt, this, this sort of contingent convertible instrument available for banks to increase their regulatory capital. So I'm, you know, I think it'll be a, an interesting one to play out. Was uh, were the Swiss regulators right to do this, or was this a mistake? I don't know, uh, but it feels like a mistake to me. I think it 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 feels like the unintended consequence of trying to um, transition this deal for UBS and Credit Suisse on a going concern basis, rather than a default uh, buyout. This was a, a commercial buyout, 
which meant that the regulator considered these type of debt instruments would have to be zeroed or at least taken into account. So I'm, I don't know, to be honest, Pete, but it, it, it might be an unintended consequence of this idea of trying to merge UBS and Credit Suisse as a commercial construct rather than a bailout. It does change, doesn't it, the whole rationale for investing in cocoa bonds, because now you can't be completely sure where you stand in the in the pecking order. And of course, if um, you're going to get nothing and shareholders will get something back, you might as well be a shareholder instead. Absolutely. Uh, without doubt, that would be the, the outcome of this particular situation. As I understand it, the ECB and Bank of England, for instance, have reaffirmed that, that the AT1s are higher up in the capital stack than equity. And it might be purely a Swiss matter because the Swiss fall outside the EU uh, guidelines in this regard. So, yeah, a bit to play out on this. But as an investor, yeah, you'd be you'd be questioning why do I hold these uh, these AT ones if they don't have any level of higher protection or at least a higher level of default uh, capability than equity. Now, the Fed does seem to be taking some of these things in account, doesn't it, in its interest rate decisions. Although it raised rates by 25 basis points, Jerome Powell did acknowledge that credit conditions were tightening, that it was getting harder for businesses and and individuals to, to borrow, and they were having to borrow at higher rates. And ultimately, that could slow the economy. So do you think, taking all that into account, the Fed is now ready to pause? Well, I think people understand that the reason uh, that monetary policy is used is to slow the economy so um, and ultimately to bring down inflation. Um, the reality is the banking crisis is, 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 is unrelated to some extent, right? So they're related but unrelated to the extent of what the Fed needs to do. The Fed needs to pr- focus on price stability and inflation and that is still remains an issue despite what's happening um, with, the, with the banking crisis. But acknowledging now that it does have second or third order effects. So, you know, if banks are at risk of, of depositor runs and regional banks are struggling, they're not going to be able to issue more credit, which has a downstream impact on economic growth. And so you'll end up with maybe a more accelerated decline in economic activity. So to that extent, I think the comments are fairly well measured. But I think it would have been a mistake if they hadn't have tightened because it would have potentially been seen as a panic. And hence, uh, you know, it might have actually triggered a further run on banks or a further run on deposit, you know, depositors' confidence if the Fed had reacted to say, well, we can't, um, we have to pause on rates right now, even with inflation where it is. Toby, thank you very much indeed. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is Director of Staten Advice. And that's it for today. And also, that's it for this week as well. It's been an eventful week to launch a new podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And please join me again on Monday when my guests will be Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Louis Coyce, who is Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. With a view from mainland China is Ben Cavender, Managing Director at the China Market Research Group. Have a great weekend. Money Talk 